Thank you, Marcus, Hannah, Chris and Crystal and everyone else who has contributed to UX Podcast. The help we get from volunteers and the contributions we get, no matter how small, all help keep UX Podcast going and cover some of the cost of producing the show. Make sure you visit uxpodcast.com slash support and contribute or volunteer to help. UX Podcast Episode 280. listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom and James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 201 countries and territories in the world, from Ireland to Nigeria. Did that go up, 201? It did go up. Oh, wow. I don't know which one yet. <laughs> I need to research. Nice. So, today... Craig Sullivan, he's been experimenting and optimizing websites for decades. He's an entertaining and informative speaker, regularly shares his knowledge and thinking through his writing and engagement on social media. Yep, and Craig is always interesting and always entertaining to talk to and has joined us on UX podcast more times than anyone else. His first appearance was 10 years ago, back in the giddy days of 2012, when we all had more hair on our heads. Craig, I mean, you you have actually been on the podcast, I think, seven times now. There's no there's no other human that's actually been on the podcast, apart from, of course, me and Pear and a few hosts. But as a guest, you're the one who's been on the show, I think, more than anyone. And the first time goes back to it's almost 10 years ago. It was 2012. And back then, though, we, were, we talked a lot about mobile and optimizing for mobile. I think our first two interviews, we talked a lot about mobile. Um, and, you know, over the years, I think we talked to you 2015, 2017, um, things have changed. So do you, how do you see yourself as changing during that time? Um, I think I, th- I think some things have changed and some things haven't changed. Um, we're still doing um, the same stupid things that we were doing with designing products 20 years ago, right? Uh, and companies have a, a short attention span. I've seen companies go through cycles where they'll learn a lot of stuff over three or four years. They'll change some key team members and all of that knowledge will vanish from the company's DNA. In fact, it's in, we'll go back to doing all the stupid things that they were doing. And uh, this cycle perpetuates itself. You know, it's a kind of short-termist thinking. And we're still getting people building products, but not checking that they actually work with people. And that problem was there 20 years ago. And the, the subtleties and nuances of, of, have changed. But there's still, for me, I thought that gap would have been closed, right? Um, uh, b- between, uh, you know, making design better for, for users, right? I thought it would have been way better now than it's actually turned out to be. So I'm, I'm really quite disappointed it's, it, it's not improved. But on the other hand, in that period of time, we've had all these other changes happening, like the mass explosion of experimentation, which is what we're talking about today, has happened during that time. Uh, and that has meant we're now 
not just making design changes in products, we're actually making multiple design changes and testing it on millions of people. And this can have huge consequences. Yeah, it's like anything. Once you start diving deep into something, it just grows and grows and grows. And it's it's so hard to know where to start, really. Because, I mean, I get into these issues with where where do we even get our devices from? So we get the cobalt from, from the Democratic Republic of Congo and we got the children mining for our batteries. And that's the only way that we can have our phones and laptops. Yeah. Are we and, okay then and then the software <laughs> running on top is a narcotic, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of a lot of digital products have been turned into narcotics, gambling mm. products, news feeds, right? Mm. Things like these. Exactly. You know, I hoped it would free the human race, but in some ways, we've actually enslaved ourselves. It's it's terrible. It's not the promise of the internet that I read about in sci-fi novels and started thinking about back in the nineties. You know, this isn't what we meant. <laughs> you know, no, it's I, like I think I mean that was a big wake-up call for a lot of us uh, in that just five, six years ago, we started thinking, well, all the things I wanted to happen, none of it really has happened. We haven't democratized the world, quite the opposite. We've, we've given more power to the people who already had a lot of power. Yeah. We haven't reduced inequality. We haven't uh, improved mm. fairness. We haven't um, uh, improved inclusion. We have created mass polarization. We have um, run into <laughs> situations where we're undermining democracy itself mm. you know these mm. are these are quite fundamental and important mm. things you know and uh, I, I, one, one time I realized when I did a calculation about the impact of a bug on a site I realized how these problems scale up right because uh, the, the BBC had a bug on their website so every time you went back a page it took you back to the top of the previous page so you'd have to scroll down like eight nine times right so I did mm -hmm. some rough testing with a few people to work out how much extra time that was right and then I multiplied it across the billions of page views that they have every month right and across the year and we came up with like 400 odd thousand days of time lost to the UK mm. population right and productivity it's just poof, mm. vanished right it's gone mm. right and all that time has been spent scrolling right because someone <laughs> didn't check if it worked right you know mm. and people have these conversations well what, what's happened with the productivity gap? I'll tell you what's happened with the productivity gap. It's stupid things like that. It's, it's missing metrics as well. So I recently wrote several articles about perverse incentives in experimentation, right? So if you make revenue your main driver, then people will think, oh, okay, uh, we'll put up the shipping fees, right? That will increase revenue. Or uh, we'll change the mixture of products that we sell. That will increase revenue. Or we'll try and get, you know, uh, we'll, we'll put loads of upsells and cross-sells on the page. We'll add extra pop-ups, right? The metric itself that you set actually conditions the behavior that then occurs, right? And if your only metric is, does it make more money? Then of course, you're not looking at, it's invisible to you whether that's harmful to the user experience. And I ran a lot of experiments where I, um, fortunately, those companies that had access to the UX metrics that would tell me whether I was doing something harmful or negative to the user experience and often found that 
there were tests that would win on you know a conversion rate or a revenue metric but they actually failed horribly or they they caused harm right mm. or 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 uh, introduced friction or they disproportionately affected one group's experience over another you know uh, and that allowed me because i i bothered to look at those metrics I was then aware of that trade-off that I was making, but if my sole North Star metric had been revenue, then all of those harmful tests. So people will often run A-B tests that will improve metrics in the short term, but that have a deleterious effect long-term, right? Either mm. on customer happiness or retention or the outcomes. LinkedIn talked about this in a very interesting post because the uh, and this is a sign of kind of good news here in the experimentation uh, space that people are thinking about this because they realized that if they ran a b tests right it could design an a b test that you know potentially kind of intentionally or unintentionally actually bias the career chances of cohorts on their platform right so what if we ran an ab test but the outcome of that ab test was to completely shaft the career chances of you know young black males right you know uh, it wasn't our intention to do that but it's actually happened that would be really terrible right and it would have an almost permanent effect on the life outcomes of those individuals so they started thinking we need to be really responsible about this and they talked about this in terms of not only measuring the impact metrics of those cohorts but also actively seeking in a data science sense to find cohorts that they didn't know exist rumsfeldian mm -hmm. cohorts right so we didn't actually know that even this group of people existed but boy did we bias things for them mm -hmm. right um, and there's an article that I'll, I'll share in uh, resources and further reading that I'll give to you guys. And that, that to me, when I read that, I thought, thank goodness, someone's really thinking about this. It was a good article, good critical thinking behind it. And it shows that there is a way to find balance, right? The yin and yang between having growth but not at the expense of of humans as a result of that growth should the growth be powered off the back of customers or should the growth be powered through by uh, making the product easy to use and great for consumers and helpful for their lives right mm. and that's uh, uh, those those incentives are often misaligned because people pick the wrong north star metric or metrics to actually measure what they're doing in experimentation that's such a good example because i think a lot of people don't even realize that they are impacting people in, in that way that you expressed it, that they actually they found a new cohort, they found someone that they didn't even know about. And that's the thing. It, as long as you don't really mind and don't really care about figuring out that problem, you are doing okay because you're looking at the numbers and you're seeing, we're doing okay, I don't see any harm happening, but you're not even looking for the harm. But how do you, how, how do you get people to start looking for the harm? <laughs> That's that's oh, one of the biggest challenges. I, I think education is so important because mm. 
certainly in the UX research field, this is an integral part of the way that you learn to do research and do it ethically, right? But the problem that's gnawing away at the heart of this is that this mass democratization and access to A-B testing has meant that hundreds of millions of experiments have been run on people via products, right? We're not testing drugs, right? Like in a controlled drug trial. But do these experiments not have the same ethical research that experiments in the medical scenario possess, right? And I would say yes, they do in many ways. So if we agree that there are potential ethical problems in experimentation in medical patients, we also agree that it's possible for digital experimentation. The big issue here is, is that many of the people running the experiments have not had any ethical, regulatory, compliance, legal training, you know, uh, how to avoid PR disasters, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, examples of good and bad practice. You know, we we have high standards for this in medicine for a very good reason, right? Because the potential for death or serious injury or harm, right? But the bar to running on experiments on millions of people as guinea pigs is way lower in the digital realm. It's like, you know, you don't need any qualifications. There's no ethics board or review board there's no peer review or consideration of ethics required you just you just put the a b testing on and off you go right um craig i mean this is this is this is an excellent point because it's it talk you're into now the, the pseudoscience of of a b testing or testing and that it, it makes out that it is real science but and, and and it points to the real science and like you say the medical trials and whatever. But at the same time, it's not doing a lot of things you say. It's you know we've got things like disclosure. When someone enrolls in a medical trial, they are very aware of the fact they're going into a trial. They are told what they're going to be. T they don't know if they're actually going to have a placebo or not, but they know they're in the trial. There's there's openness there. And then also we're often. I mean you don't you don't generally enroll to a no. cocktail of tests at the same time. That you know we've we've got a scientific situation where you know we've limited the world around what's happening, so we can actually understand the change that we're trying yeah, it's, to assess. Um, uh, uh, it it, it's a very difficult area, that one, because it really depends on the intent, right? Uh, and it can be very different. I've got uh, I've got some examples I wanted to talk about, but you know, um, uh, so uh, you know the. One pro thing people ask me is, is A-B testing ethical, right? Is the ethical problem with the A-B testing? No, it's not, because somewhere at some point there's a human decision behind that or a human bias, right, or a human mistake or a lack of human governance, right, or a lack of human peer review. It's not the A-B testing software itself that's the problem. It's the way that the tool is being wielded and you know sometimes it's used in a bad way but experimentation for me is about making faster and more confident decisions what if we didn't test at all so we put we just put fe new features live on a website well that's potentially more harmful ethically because you don't even know if it had a harmful effect or not like what we were talking about earlier on per so you know i ca i would argue that you know testing features to see if they have a harmful impact on the company, the customers, the suppliers, the business partners, the environment, 
all of and more things is is really important to uh, include in that you know the ethical problems are not caused by the ability to experiment but the human decisions that provide the framework for that experimentation you know so if you just went and implemented changes you you are theoretically running into the same ethical problems it's just that you're completely uh, uh, both unaware of the the revenue or conversion rate impact, but you're also unaware of the user experience impact. So, I don't think EB testing software or the capability to do it is the problem. It's it, it would be like if we gave lightsabers to everyone, right? Real lightsabers and said, look, everyone have a lightsaber. You know what's going to happen, right? Loads of people are going to end up in hospital missing arms and legs, right? Because they have lightsaber fights and stuff, right? And we kind of done that with AB testing. We give people these really amazing tools that can do great good and be used in an ethical way to help quantitatively and qualitatively improve software for human beings right but it can also be used for bad just in the same way that designers can design good patterns or or dark patterns we can have good experiments gray experiments or definitely um, dark experiments so the essence then is the education because i see today people can attend online courses for two or three months and then they call themselves uh, a UX designer or a CRO expert, and and that's the way it goes. And then they have no training in figuring out what are the other things that are happening with the work I'm doing. What is the impact? Yeah, I, I think that ethics education should be mandatory for all product team members that are involved in experimentation, right? It should be there when you join a company. It should be available when you move team into that product team. It should be mandatory. It should be part of the HR process, right? So that it's not like, oh, I'll skip that and do it later. You're highlighting, I guess, the, the situation a lot of people find themselves in where there's, I suppose you could call it an ethical gap that you've got an organization that um, is lured by the honey in the pot. And, you know, even if you have insisted that certain people have, or all people have ethicals, ethical training and so on, and that you yourself have picked up on this, you've still got the honeypot. And the organization, like you said, marketing was, oh, this is fantastic. We run with it. So, I mean, when I guess a lot of us are going to find ourselves in those organizations where parts of the organization are maybe not aligned yeah. and are attracted by the honeypot. What do you do for that? I mean, it's this, a transformational change. Yeah, this is where change, you need what, um, what do we do? governance. So uh, there's an excellent entry uh, on Wikipedia that explains perverse incentives. But one of the good examples on there is when the British government had a problem with uh, an explo a population explosion of cobras in Delhi, right? So what they did was they offered a bounty for dead cobras, right? And lots of people brought them cobras and you'd think the curve would be like this, right? You'd have loads of cobras and then as more people collected, more cobras that would drop off, right? Because they would have brought in all, uh, the, the population would have reduced, right? But the thing was, is they discovered after a while that number of cobras that were getting brought into them was massively increasing, right? And they were like, well, what's going on here, right? So what they did is they investigated it and they found out that lots of enterprising people had set up around the perimeter of Delhi cobra farms, right? Where they were breeding and rearing cobras mm -hmm. in order to then kill them and take them to the British government. 
So at that point, the British government then said, right, that's it, we're not going to pay any bounty for these anymore. So all the people who, who were breeding the cobras, they were no longer valuable to them. So what did they do? They let them go. So they ended up with more cobras than they had in the first place, right? And these perverse uh, incentive problems are happening in experimentation teams all the time. If you focus, say, around conversion rate, then people will uh, do things to try and get you to check out in one session. They'll give you money off discounts, right? You know, uh, and the problem that people often run into is they're not having a balanced set of metrics, right? They're only having one metric. They're not including metrics that measure user pain and happiness that could be caused by the result. And that could be product level UX metrics, but it could also be overarching stuff like NPS, right? That's such a good example though, because I mean, that's, that's first, second and third order thinking is what I usually call it, but it's such, it's such a long time frame. So the Cobra example is like, if you if you we've talked about this with elevators before the, the person designing the system is not the person installing it and there can be yeah. so many years passing in between and there are different consultants involved so keeping sight of what is going to happen in the end i mean there's no incentive with the people working in the first stage to actually think about the things happening in the third stage yeah and that is a huge problem so who who is the person who keeps track of the whole <laughs> the whole journey well, that's where governance of uh, uh, experimentation comes in. And the, uh, if you look at a, a kind of center of excellence or experiment hub model where you have a team who's both um, ha has a product function in terms of they're building tooling for people to run trustworthy, uh, reliable experiments, but they also have a governance and data collection function, which is they need to measure what is happening with experiments in order to allow someone to work out that the system is being gamed. And any metric that you create, people will find a way to game it, right? So it's not that you set up a metric and then you're done. It is a continual balancing act of yin and yang. Yin and yang aren't fixed, right? They flow and change, right? And the same will happen within your teams. You'll set, you'll design what you think is a great metric system that you hope, hope will avoid these perverse incentives. But how do you then check that actually the perverse incentives haven't actually occurred despite your best intentions when designing it? And it's that bit that's missing is the ethical kind of management of this stuff actually embedded into the governance are we actually checking to make sure that something weird and perverted isn't happening as a result of the experimentation and the answer at most companies is yes there are perverse incentives everywhere and, and this is the problem that's happening because um uh, as lucas vermeer once explained to me said it's very difficult to tell the difference between a high quality test and a poor quality test if you're only looking at a metric like revenue right then uh, you could say well we made like 50 million right uh, and 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 show uh, but uh, because you're not actually showing the qualitative aspects of that test you know you're looking at it in a very narrow way and you completely ignore all the rest of that stuff and it's some has to be somebody's job to govern experimentation Right. You know, mm. at, at a very senior level within the company at board level, if possible. And yet most experimentation teams 
are siloized in a way and they're not independently governed right they're marking they're marking their own homework basically I mean, what you're saying there is that you're you're saying that um, organizations have to have like um, an experimentation yeah. oversight. Not like an IRB. I'm thinking uh, more a uh, center of excellence or governance, whose job it's not their job to um, uh, manage those teams. Their job is to collect the data and metrics that will allow for yeah. those teams to be governed. Right. So let's say, for example, you run a bunch of teams, and the data that you collect shows you that three of the teams are running really poor quality experiments that are tactical they can harm long-term revenue or customer satisfaction so then you you because you know that that is happening you can go and say those two teams need support right if you just set up some rules and expect the teams to follow them it doesn't work like that it, 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 they will find their own way around them or design their own process or create their own perverse incentives so you have to you have to have a function whose job is to collect the data that will allow management to actually manage the experimentation outcomes at a meta level within the organization and all the way down to an experiment level so you've got the governance of the experiment itself the governance of the teams that are running the experiment and then you have the governments or uh, governance of experimentation at a program level within the company and you need all three of those need to be present even if you give people the training if you don't kind of have the backup governance there then the training will come to naught and I think you touched upon something before earlier when you said the long-term revenue that we need to keep an eye on that. And, and, and I think that's kind of the key to making the change, to make, helping people realize they have to invest in the governance. They have to invest in a new way of working where you actually consider the preferable, the possible, and uh, the potential futures and, and sit down and have a discussion around that because it can help you differentiate yourself from others within the same industry it can actually help you be better. I know, Craig, I mean, something that I think I've mentioned to you before is that I, I, I really thought there was some value in creating an open hypothesis movement where, where organizations share their design hypotheses and, and even the subsequent results from it um, with others to try and develop a peer review-like culture. And I, I, think, I think you pointed out to me that, well, there's some businesses, it's going, to be a, um, it's going to be a business secret, some of this stuff, so they're not going to be able to share it. Correct. But at the same yep. time, if we're getting into more kind of like um, uh, public sector experimentation and, and beyond the, the revenue-focused aspects, maybe there's still room for it and like you say about kind of like the ethical guidelines things but how do we then uh, the 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 commercial secrets defense is uh, is a good one but it can also be misused yes, right exactly. to prevent transparency right yeah so all the algorithms that we see that they're kind of like business protected yeah facebook's newsfeed yeah, yeah. There are, but plenty of exa examples of these how do we know it's even happening right because yeah. they may not even know it's happening we might be seeing the outcome who's watching them to make sure that they're not doing these things and that this again is an internal company governance problem right you know engagement on facebook uh, uh, here's another perverse incentive right so you are incentivized to basically share content that makes people really angry at each other argue and create polarization right so it becomes a self-fulfilling thing right if you mistake anger and polarization for engagement because of the metric that you're using 
then you may get an unintended result, right? Um, but they, they knew this was happening. At, they should have known it was happening once they found out, and then they should have done something about it. I have a rule of three for ethics, which is if you start doing it and you know it's bad, stop straight away, right? If you just found out that something you're doing is bad, you know it's bad, then stop straight away. And if you don't know you're doing anything bad, you need to check if you are and see point number two. <laughs> Craig, it's always fantastic <laughs> to talk to you. And as you say, I mean, creating awareness, I think that's what we're doing now. Thank you very much for joining us again today. It's um, It's been a few too many years, actually, since last time. Well, we'll, um, nice. we'll have to do it again. Yeah, we will. And I'm pretty certain that we will. <laughs> I mean, this is the seventh time. There will be an eighth. Do you know what? I think that might be the first interview with Craig where he hasn't sworn. That's a very good point. He must be mellowing in his old age. I'm always expecting that from him. <laughs> really interesting. I only only thought about that because uh. you actually swore in our little kind of discussion before we start recording this. Yeah. Well, another thing that I've noticed how Craig nowadays refers, well, uses experimentation a lot in when he's talking about um, oh, his work of optimization and, and testing. Mm. Um, oh, moved, moved to a slightly broader term than it maybe used to be a number of years ago uh, when the hype was all around A-B testing. And there still is a lot of mm. hype around A-B testing, but it's really good to hear how Craig uses experimentation now as an as a, um, uh, umbrella term for a lot of this stuff we work with. But I guess, exactly, yeah. I guess it opens up the conversation. Yeah, uh, but, but all design is experimentation, isn't it? I mean, what oh, I suppose it's, it's how considered your design is and, and maybe how observed it is in, in practice, you know, in how it's used um, that, I guess, regulates, informs, you know, the results of your experiments, all these design experiments. Mm. Yeah, of course, everything is, is experiments. And I think using that term uh, opens up for, for, the, for the conversation around uh, how do you perform ethical experimentation? Because that is what, what Craig was saying, is that you have to have ethical review boards. You need to uh, ensure that you, you keep subjects safe within the experiment. And as you were saying, it's really hard these days because you're being experimented on then, uh, if everything is experimentation, you're being experimented on constantly, yeah. uh, whether the companies themselves are aware of it or not, because they are putting stuff out there, learning, listening in some way at least, uh, and changing stuff really quickly uh, so so not only is a lot of experimentation on ethical um it's also there's a great deal of pseudoscience going on as we mentioned in the interview that there's this experimentation that claims to be or gives the appearance of being scientific um, and being robust um but actually it's fundamentally flawed Right, and we talked a lot about this, about being able to, to actually interpret the data that you have in front of you. It's so easy. A-B testing seems so simple uh, <laughs> as a term, and, but understanding the specifics of what the data tells you after an A-B test, that's really, really hard. That takes a years of experience. And replication, which I know is one of your favorite topics. Yes, exactly. You, the same experiment needs to, to convey the same result the second time you perform it. Yeah which is incredibly difficult mm. um, in, in our world of, of digital because mm. uh, normal experiments in the lab, you would hold 
everything else um, still. You would, you know, you would maintain all the other variables, mm. and you would choose the ones that you're playing with. Whereas when we're working with digital products, there's so much stuff happening. Life is happening, and you can't control everything. You can't control everything from, you know, what um, what weather's happening at the place of the person that is that you you know that's visiting your site. You could, there's just so much going on, so much changing. How many how much the kids are screaming that day, or how mm -hmm. you know, how, how bad your cold is. I mean, all this stuff kind of alters the experiment, so it's not quite the same maybe as last time you ran it. Is there a pandemic going on, or did that yeah. nullify the last two years? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And that really, for me, that's hugely interesting because also with the experimentation focus now, uh, borrowing from the medical industry and realizing that, well, all the scientific experiments have been going on for the last 200 years, they haven't been very ethical. And how long exactly does it take for something to be considered so unethical that we need to draw up laws and guidelines and, and the Hippocratic Oath around uh, promising that we will do this in a safe way for everyone involved. Mm. Uh, the the awareness of something being wrong and something being bad, because bad came up uh, several times during this interview, but how do we define what is bad and how do we make people aware of that? And something we, we, we did talk about with Craig, but it didn't make the cut of the final edit, is the whole issue around small organizations. Much of what Craig talked about, and we discussed in the interview, was around mm. you know programs, teams, yeah. You know, big org stuff you know that you you get in organizations of thousands of people or definitely hundreds of people uh, whereas the majority of businesses are small businesses how and with ex experimentation being so accessible for even the smallest of organizations how do we make that um, ethical and successful and uh, robust um craig in the in the um, chat we had, he did suggest that an ethics charter or a checklist and, and compulsory education even would be maybe the part of the answer there. But mm. I don't, I don't see how that flies with these, you know, really small companies. Like you know, if you're if you're that person who's, who's using a web service to set up an, uh, a web shop, which you can do in a couple of hours, mm. how do we get them to sign up to, you know, ethical charters for experimentation and? making sure they're educated before they sign up. It just does not going to happen, is it? I don't think you make people care through education. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, there is, it has to be normalized that what experimentation entails always has to include an ethical process where you do the work, you've signed off on the work, and you have the documentation of the work you've done. But for it to work, it has to cost. To incentivize people to doing the right thing, it has to cost in some way to not do the ethical processes, or it has to be really rewarding to do them. And that cost and reward, of course, sure, it can be monetary, but it can also be social, social relationship-based, community-based, etc. So it has to be that more people are aware of the harm so that people actually expect and place demands on the people building these things. Yes, so we, mm -hmm. we have to reach a state where it's socially unacceptable to have unethical design practices and to mm -hmm. run um, oh, unethical digital experimentation. Right. And our frustration, of course, is born out of us seeing this uh, perhaps earlier than a lot of other people, and we want it to happen now. But you have to look at history and see how long these things take. Mm. And we need to keep on calling stuff out. Yes, exactly. Because that's, that's ultimately the seed that grows into social unacceptability, isn't it?
Yeah. If you keep pointing out what's behind the curtain and and what damage it's doing, then hopefully, eventually, um, it will spread and it'll be understood. And we need to be better at people who have been warning about these things for long, long, much longer than we have. The people who are the people who are most often underserved and set aside uh, who actually are the people who are at most risk, who are the most hurt and harmed. Uh, they have been warning, writing, trying trying to be heard, but few, too few listen. Uh, and I think we need to be better at listening to the underprivileged groups uh, in society who are already warning us about the risks that they are put in by these technologies. And per, I think it's really good to point out again what Craig said, that the potential harm from not experimenting and not doing any testing at all could be even more. Yes, exactly. So, so we're in an interesting, mm. yeah. I suppose, not trap, but mm. dilemma, I guess, that mm. unethical testing is bad. Not testing is bad. So, mm. you know, walking that walk or finding that balance, mm. um, which is... Uh, ethical, socially acceptable, um, creating value, creating good for all parties involved is, um, oh, yeah. God, there's also this, exactly, <laughs> but there's also this self-awareness that has to happen with the people building stuff that you have to yourself realize that even though you think you're a good person, even though you have good intent, you are making stuff that will hurt some segment of people. Uh, and that yeah. realization can be tough, tough to uh, acknowledge and, t and tough to uh really like like <laughs> also tell if you can acknowledge it yourself but also tell other people about it and be open about it mm -hmm. and actually be transparent and say we got it wrong uh this is how we'll try and do better in the future that's good pal that loops back nicely mm -hmm. into all design is experimentation yeah and i think that's what we need to be reminding ourselves of everything we do is an experiment Yes. So for listening to next, I suppose you've already teased about uh, <laughs> previous interviews with Craig and the cursing going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen back to them all and see if you can find every single swear word he uses during <laughs> 10 years of appearing on the podcast. <laughs> that when he does, he goes back to, I mean, he joined us um, way back in episode 11, um, episode 26, um, episode 56, Episode 113, episode 116, episode 157, and now episode 280. Mm. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. is black and white and can cut through steel beams. I don't know, James. What is black and white and can cut through steel beams? A penguin with a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if that wasn't bad enough, I, I'm, I'm going to do two. I'm going to do two. How hot is a lightsaber?
I don't know, James. How hot is a lightsaber? Lukewarm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. <sighs>